All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and get get going here. Um, Matt, thanks so much for um, for joining us, and I have some other folks that are going to swing by as well. Um, the uh, so. You know, and Matt, I'm obviously very, um, really looking forward to getting your perspective and story and all this. I'll tell you that for me personally, um, I my eyes were kind of opened on this um, in reading the Friendly Orange Glow by Brian Deere, which a book we talked about before that I really, really enjoyed. And I don't know if Matt, if you've read the Friendly the Friendly Orange Glow, very well written, super interesting history. And in particular, he tells this story of Brody Lockard, who was a, or he is, is still living, but he's a, um, was a gymnast at Stanford and had this really debilitating accident that left him a quadriplegic. And he um, discovered, he'd already been kind of, he'd been doing work with Plato, but he got this Plato terminal that was brought into his, basically his hospital room. And he uh, wrote Mahjong for the, the Play-Doh, um, and it was this kind of exquisitely designed Mahjong, all of which using a, 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 a typing stick um, that he was manipulating with his mouth. And he later um, was part of a program called Homework from Control Data that was uh, deliberately designed to give Play-Doh terminals to, to the disabled, um, which I thought was also super interesting. It left me with a lot of questions that I that, that Brian Deere doesn't necessarily answer. Um, and then the just the last bit I'll say on this that was that was really interesting to me is that he got a um, the, got something called the Personics Headmaster. Which allowed him to type much more quickly with by moving with head movements as opposed to the mouth stick, and he was able to leave the mouth stick behind. And just reading about the truly life changing difference the the technology had for Brody, you, I, and of course, you know, your eyes get opened about how meaningful, deeply, deeply, deeply meaningful this is for those folks who are really able to do something just qualitatively and quantitatively different because the technology has been made accessible to them. And then the kind of the footnote was the Personics Headmaster was not going to be manufactured anymore. And you're just like, oh my God, this a key technology. Oh man. So anyway, so Matt, that's kind of my, it, 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 that's where I got, you know, uh, interested in this and also just realized how ignorant I am of this aspect of history. So I'm really excited to have you here. And um, maybe with that intro, you can uh, give us your perspective and your, your story on, sure. on accessibility um, in computing. So uh, thank you. Um, so I'm going to be um, at least primarily talking about blindness and low vision, uh, because that is the, uh, the area that I'm familiar with. Um, just a little bit of uh, personal background. I've been, uh, legally blind from birth. Um, I have enough sight that I can, I can read the computer screen up close, um, like way up close if the, uh, if, if the fonts are a little bit larger than usual. And, and my limited sight also helps me uh, yeah, move around, uh, know where I'm going. But I, I, use, I, I do use a white cane when I'm outside of my home and I can't drive. And I often use a screen reader which, as I'll explain in more depth, um, is a program that that well, basically reads aloud what's on the screen. Um, so <clears throat> I I'm told that I don't look that I don't look this old, but I am about 40 years old. I was born in 1980, and so um, talking computers were an integral part of my childhood. And um, I've read a little bit about the very early history of talking computers. I know, for instance that there was a talking computer terminal 
called Total Talk in 1981. But the first talking computer that I was exposed to as a child was the app was an Apple IIe running a, a speech synthesis card called the Echo. And if you'll indulge me, I would like to play a brief audio clip of the Echo. Um, hopefully the low tech solution of pointing my phone mic at my desk speakers will work well enough. Uh, can I do this? This will be absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Hello, I'm an Apple IIe synthesizer. I can take more than text and turn it into speech. Or you may close and use in phone use work out. I can talk low. I can talk fast. Rather make me not read numbers. Or slow. Rather make me not read numbers. I can say letters. Take me T B D F G. And can also pronounce punctuation. Period, comma, question, mark, semicolon, yonder sign. Now type in what you want me to say or type in to end this demo. So did that come through well enough? Wow, yes. Now, that was not the pen that was not the pinnacle of speech synthesis technology, even when it came out in 1982, but it was relatively low cost. Um, the hardware, uh, the, the, the card that you could put in an Apple II was basically a, a sound output card using some kind of low bitrate LPC, uh, linear predictive coding. The speech synthesis software was uh, simple enough, you know, primitive enough to fit in the 16K memory expansion card of an Apple II Plus, wow. where it would be out of the way of any basic programs that you might want to run. And it was, for the most part, only basic programs that could work with the primitive screen reader that came with that synthesizer. The screen reader was called Text Talker, and it would uh, would redirect the the uh, I.O. routines um, so that uh, the output would uh, would go through the speech synthesizer. And in fact, the speech synthesis would block the output. So if if a program was outputting multiple lines, then uh, visually you would you would see one line at a time uh, being displayed on the screen as as they were spoken. Wow. And so can I ask some questions and, about this? Sorry. Sure. So th you said th this is 1982. That was when that uh, that was when that card came out. Okay, yes. because I I mean I just but I was I was first exposed to it as like a, a six year old in nineteen eighty six or seven. Well, so it also so the this the, I mean, the first time I feel I heard speech synthesis quote unquote speech synthesis was of course watching War Games nineteen eighty three War Games I'm told that was fake. It is fake. It is fake, and it makes me feel so much better. To th I mean I was blown away by the speech synthesis. I don't know if you know the story on that. The, it is fake. To make it sound convincingly fake, do you know what they did? I mean, this is just like genius at some level. They read the sentences backwards and then they rechopped it up. Oh, oh, wow. So it's just a person reading it. And I remember the timing, like, wow, that's like really that. And, but now hearing the synthesis. They could have just used an echo, though. Well, but Why didn't they just use an echo? <laughs> because honestly, the technology, the quote unquote technology they had was further along than the actual technology. Um, because Now, I do, I do happen to have an example on hand of what was probably the pinnacle of speech Ooh. synthesis technology in 1982. Um, if this is like a. A 15-second clip. Absolutely. Um, so, and and what you're going to hear before the actual speech synthesizer is uh, a man named Dennis Klatt, who was the inventor of Deck Talk, 
and and he in 1986 uh, compiled a bunch of recordings uh, of various snapshots in the history of speech synthesis technology, and he introduces each one. So you'll hear him, and then you'll hear this uh, Prose 2000 system. 32, the Speech Plus Incorporated Prose 2000 commercial system, 1982. Four hours of steady work, they thought. A large size in striking his heart to sell. The boy was there when the sun rose. A rod of used to catch famous Salmon. So, wow. quite a bit more advanced, but also, I have no doubt, quite a bit more expensive. You probably... Uh, not many uh, school public school systems could afford one of those. And is this being designed with accessibility in mind at this time? Um, I mean, I, I I don't know if the I don't know if the Pros two thousand was the uh, the Echo. Um, from from what I understand, the original manufacturer Street Electronics had had accessibility as in mind as one of the possible applications. Um, the, their their uh, text talker screen reader was was certainly designed right. with that in mind. Um, the the maintenance of text talker later in the eighties got taken over by the American Printing House for the Blind. And then, Matt, just ask you another question because I didn't want to gloss over it. So you just you discovered this as a six year old, and you said in in the late eight, like nineteen eighty six. You said I think. Um, yep. And uh-huh. so. Was that the first speech synthesis that you had heard? And like, yes, it was. And so, take me to that moment. Was that? I mean, that must have been an amazing, memorable moment for you, I imagine. So, so I, I have a couple of, uh, I have a couple of early memories from that time. So, I was in first grade, and and uh, I, all throughout my uh, elementary school years and through part of middle school, I was always, I always attended whichever school in town had the program for the blind and visually impaired kids, the, the special ed program. And so sometimes, and so I would spend a, a good deal of time each week in the, the, the room with the, in, in the classroom with the, the, the special ed teachers that worked with us. And I have one, I think my earliest memory of hearing speech synthesis was uh, one of the teacher, one of the teachers in that room was working with me on my handwriting because remember, I I do have some vision. I I can handwrite with some difficulty because my head has to be up against the paper to see what I'm writing. But while I was working on my handwriting, one of the other blind students would be working on a talking computer on the other side of the room, and I I think I envied them. <laughs> but uh, but my turn came soon enough uh, because. At some point in my first grade year, they started teaching me how to touch type, and uh, there was a uh, there was a program for the Apple II called Talking Text Writer, which was a talking word processor using this Echo speech synthesizer. You couldn't you couldn't use any of the mainstream word processors because the screen reader was too primitive. It wouldn't work with anything that wrote directly to screen memory. Um, so, but but there was a talking word processor, and I I remember that it that the echo seemed to struggle with the hard G sound. You might have you might have noticed that in the clip, and it also didn't pronounce my first name Matthew correctly. Really, it was like Matthew. Interesting. <laughs> um, and and you know I I asked my teacher why it couldn't say things correctly, and she tried to explain, but um, you know. I was I was a, a six or seven year old, and the teacher wasn't particularly computer savvy. So, I mean, 
that the, the explanation couldn't be very satisfactory. But yes, um, in the sixty five oh two and how much RAM? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and text talker having to fit in the upper 16K of, uh, of memory. So that was, and, and um, I had access to, and, and the, the, the computers that were adapted for us in the public schools were based, were Apple IIs with echo speech synthesizers until 1994 when I was in seventh grade. Wow. And wow. at that point, um, <clears throat> at that point, we got they 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 brought in a PC running MS DOS, and uh, there were two um, there were two uh, access technology. Uh, a, you know, we we have an abbreviation in our industry called AT, which variously stands for access technology, adaptive technology, assistive technology. Take your pick. But there were two AT programs on this PC. There was a screen. Well, first of all, there was a built-in speech synthesis card called the Keynote Gold. Um, and there was a screen reader called Master Touch, um, so-called because it had a, a hardware peripheral that came with it. It was like a touch-sensitive tablet that you could run your finger along to review the screen. Um, I don't know that that part ever really caught on. Uh, but uh, And there was also a screen magnification program called Zoom Text, which would, uh, so, uh, basically, it would <clears throat> you would have uh, it would display a portion of the screen magnified, and you could you could pan around, and it would automatically track your cursor and and things like that. And so, that since since I had some usable vision, they taught me how to use both the screen reader and the screen magnifier. And that must have been a but, hell of an upgrade. From I mean, yes, yes it, it definitely was the the MS DOS screen readers since. Well, first of all, the PC had more room, although you were still dealing with the cursed 640k memory limitation. Um, but and 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 all of the fun of multiple TSRs coexisting <laughs> in that. <laughs> but the MS DOS, but at least the MS DOS screen reader was able to read from uh, from screen memory because that the, the PC, as I recall, was a much more uh, interrupt-driven platform than the Apple II. So, so that, that there were more ways that a DOS screen reader could kind of <laughs> stick its hooks in and, 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 and provide access, even if the application wasn't fully cooperative. Um, it is truly the glass half full of, the, of DOS is the fact that, a, that a, an accessibility application can get its hooks in. Because, of course, there are, so there's plenty it was of... It's also the glass half full <laughs> of, of Windows. Oh, interesting. As I'll get to. Yeah, interesting. Um, now I have a, I have an audio sample of the Keynote Gold synthesizer. Um, this again was probably not the pinnacle of speech technology for its time, but it was a definite upgrade from the Echo. Okay. That's enough of that. That was just some guy making a recording of uh, of Keynote Gold with it. Keynote Gold with a modern Windows screen reader. I, he must have had some old hardware lying around. But that was just one that I happened to find on the net. Um, so, um, that is a, that is yeah. So good, uh, the thing that sounds like the Cylon in the original nineteen seventies Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> ah, 
Yeah. Um, now, with the Keynote Gold, I'm pretty sure that the speech synthesis was being done by some kind of processor on the card, because when when we turned on our DOS PC immediately before the BIOS could have even finished doing its power on self test, you would hear Keynote Gold. That's so awesome. And then at that time, was hardware required? I, I ask because you know my earliest memory of these kinds of technologies was Talking Moose. I think in like the late '80s on the Mac, which uh, you know all all this was very evocative of. So uh, the Mac could certainly do software synthesis. Um, I remember. So I I first got online in in '93 using the 2400 baud modem in my mother's computer. And I remember reading in 94 about a DOS screen reader that could use the, the software synthesizer that came with the Sound Blaster 16 card. But what I particularly remember reading about it was that this software synthesis option didn't work with some terminal programs because of the way that the software synthesis would tie up the CPU. So I mean, if we, um, you think about like technically, there's a. I mean, I'm just so impressed with the echo. But just as Matt, as you're you're talking, like you really have to get your hooks into a lot of the system in order to be able to kind of pull this off. This is technically this is really challenging to pull off. Oh, and I haven't even got into GUI screen reading yet. Right. Yeah. So so uh, let's get into that now. So the first uh, screen reader for a GUI was a program called Outspoken for the Mac which was released in 1989. If there are any uh, pre-OS 10 Mac fans in here, you may remember a screensaver called After Dark from a company called Berkeley oh, yeah. Systems. Um, that company, apparently their, their real bread and butter, at least at first, was developing these accessibility tools, apparent, from what I read in Wikipedia, that it was initially under contract to the National Institutes of Health. But anyway, Outspoken came out in 1989. Um, the first Windows screen reader uh, called Window Bridge came out in 1992. And um, I'm sure you guys are dying to know how these things could have possibly did what they did. So basically what, uh, what Outspoken and what Outspoken relied on exclusively, as far as I'm aware, was basically hooking into inter intercepting calls to like the quick draw graphics routines. Um, so, so it could build up a model of what was being drawn onto the screen. And the, the term that was coined for this that basically everybody adopted was uh, an off-screen model OSM. So, um, so if you had an application that did its own text rendering, uh, rather than using Quick Draw, or in the case of Windows, the uh, graphics device interface GDI, if you had an application that did its own text rendering, then it would not be accessible with one of these screen readers. And how, circa the early '90s, how many applications were using the Windows facility to to render text versus doing their own thing? Um, I think most of them. Okay, at this so point. so it would work with most. And I mean. I'm, in terms of the off-screen model, how would it represent those things that are, are strictly visual? Or is it really focused on reading text, or is it trying to? Um, so um, a screen reader could. So by by intercepting these routines, uh, the you know, calls to these routines, a screen reader could at least some of the time detect if if an icon was being drawn to the screen, and then it could do by doing like a a checksum or a hash or similar of the contents of the icon, it could give that icon an identity and then it it, uh, uh, it, it could say something like 
you know, graphic 53 or something. And then if you, if, if, if a sighted person was, was working with you to adapt the, the system you know, to, to, to help you configure the system, then they could label the graphics and, and store those labels in the database. And, and did you yourself, so, you, you, you used all this technology as well, the, the, the early windows technology or. I did not. Okay. Um, and so, um, again, being online in 94, I kind of, and, 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 following I, I followed one or two forums uh about this technology and i i kind of remember reading about a, uh, a about the existence of windows screen readers but it wasn't something i pursued at the time because i never had well first of all since since i i have some usable vision i was i was primarily using the computer that well i, w- I was completely using the computer that way when I was at home because I never had access to these hardware speech synthesizers at home. So I, I didn't use, I, I didn't, I didn't get exposure to any of these uh, early uh, GUI screen readers. And in fact, I didn't, I didn't really start to, to learn about what was going on in that area until um, 1998 when I was about 17. And so um, by that time, I had been out of the public school system for a few years. In my eighth grade year, I, I was, my parents moved me to the same private religious school that my siblings were attending. And, you know, I was, I was okay with it at the time, but that I did become the only visually impaired, the first and only visually impaired student at that school. Oh boy, that can't be easy. Um, and um, I mean... Uh, it, it, it had its ups and downs. I'm, I'm a little ashamed to ad- embarrassed to admit it now, but the school that the, the principal of the school kind of decided to make me the school's charity case. He did kind of a, he did an all school fundraiser to buy me a laptop and screen magnification software. Well, you're not going to turn that down. But, <laughs> I, mean, I guess that could no. be right. That's like, Oh, you want to give me a laptop? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. So, but uh, in, in 1998, um, I, through through pure coincidence, I happened to cross paths with a blind person online for the first time in years, and and so as I got to know as I got to know her and don't read anything into the gender, we were just friends. Um, but uh, as I got to know as I got to know her, yes, go ahead. yes, I didn't mean to interrupt. But so where did you? Because you mentioned this too that you were like hanging out in forums. I, I was that. Where did you meet in 1998? Is this Usenet? Is there are there particular websites or what, how did you? I was totally so, going to ask, is this Usenet? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, actually, this was on a type of mud. Um, I'm, I'm, nice. There you uh, go. Yeah. So I was uh, my 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 preferred distraction from the homework that I really should have been doing was hanging out on. Uh, in particular, a, a flavor of mud called a moo for mud object oriented, and and it had it had its own programming language. And for me, the the appeal was it was a combination of chat room and and fun programming environment. So um, and so I happened to cross paths with a blind person on one of these moos, and and as I got to as I as I got to know her and 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 um, yeah learned about how she was using her computer learned that she was using a Windows screen reader. Now, unfortunately for her, she had gotten saddled with, and, and, and I should mention that at this time, Windows screen readers cost, I mean, the, just, just never mind the speech synthesizer. The software um, 
would cost like $500 or more. Um, because I mean, at, at, at least the, the, the rationalization for this was, was that it was a small market, um, a small market and, and yeah, heavy demands on tech support, et cetera. Um, so, um, she had unfortunately gotten stuck with a windows screen reader that wasn't keeping up with the fast changing world of windows at that time. And this was also a, uh, particularly, uh, dark time for access to the web on windows, because, um, as you, as I'm sure you recall, um, yeah, tables and frames were, were both, uh, being heavily used and, these screen readers were still depending heavily on their off-screen models to provide access to the contents of the web browser window. So if you had a if you had a web page that used the typical layout table with navigation links on the left and page content on the right, and you tried to read that with your screen reader, it would just read, read. straight across. Right. Yeah. Now, um, there was uh there was a uh there was a web browser designed specifically for blind people called PW WebSpeak, but uh, that was a—I mean, that 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 was its own web browser, not Netscape or Internet Explorer. And it it was a—I'm I'm sure that there were uh, a great many websites that weren't compatible with this specialized web browser. I feel like there's so, so many follow-up questions just on PW WebSpeak. One, I don't want to tell them how to do their branding, but it's not exactly a catchy... I mean, it was... How do you was one to discover I, I PW WebSpeak? Um, and is this aimed, again, or is, this is aimed at accessibility explicitly? I yes, assume. Okay, squarely. Squarely, yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, sorry, yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, and and then the, the screen reader that Anne, uh, the, the blind person that I had met online, had gotten that... I don't know if she bought it herself or if it was bought for her. Um, the It was developed by one person who apparently was not making enough money from it, and he had to go take a job at another company. Um, so it was basically abandoned. And so by late 1998, uh, Anne and I were thinking of, seriously thinking about getting her set up with Linux and Emacs speak, um, which is where... Uh, and 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 as I mentioned, well, when Dan brought up Emacs Speak last week, I mentioned that I had made some well, small contributions to that community, and so that was what started me down that road. So, so you are you're 18. Have you yep. decided that? I mean, clearly, I mean, software engineer, you have programmed, you programmed. I mean, mm-hmm. had, had you decided that, that was your life's calling at this point? Um, I, I knew for a long time at this point that programming was my life's calling. I mean, I, I had started learning to program on my on my family's Apple II GS computer when I was eight years old. And um, I had an uncle who taught me basically everything he knew about, uh, well, mainly basic programming on that platform. Okay, I've got um, to ask on the 2GS, I mean, total shout out to the 2GS. I spent way too much time playing Epic Summer Games on the 2GS. Ah. Um, but the GS, of course, stands for graphics and sound. Was there better yes. speech, speech synthesis on the 2GS? Uh, yes. Unfortunately, I do not have an audio clip of the one text-to-speech engine that I know of. Well, for, geez, for that. I don't know, Matt. It's pretty disappointing that you don't have an audio clip from an Apple II GS. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but so yeah, but, it was better. the thing is though, um, 
as far as I know, nobody ever did uh, anything that could be considered a screen reader using the soft the speech synthesis software that was available for that machine. Yeah, um, so um, I I know <clears throat> what I I uh, I had a, a brief email correspondence in '94 with with a blind programmer who was working on a GUI screen reader uh, for the 2GS, but he was doing it using he was doing it using the Echo synthesizer, I think, because um, because he was as a as a some kind of hack on top of the version of Text Talker that was available for the 2GS. Again, maybe maybe the uh, well, I don't know. Well, you um, get this problem that I mean, and it's kind of a theme that you've hit on a couple of times. Where this is super technical to develop, and ultimately people have to eat. And you know, you've got to have some. You know, when these markets kind of you begin to slice the markets smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, this is why you're kind of leading up to this open source moment, which must have been a real watershed moment, I imagine. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, although, what uh, what Anne and I didn't understand going into into our adventure with Linux and Emacs speak um, was that uh, the author of Emacs speak uh, TV Raman was basically building it for himself and of course that that is the way with personal open source projects but he was he was building it for himself not not as something that was specifically designed to be more generally useful and when when we and also other uh, newcomers arrived on the Emacs Speak mailing list and started asking basic questions. Um, I, I think there was an expectation from Raman and and the other regulars on the list that that users of Emacs Speak would already be fluent in Emacs and comfortable with uh, reading things, you know, finding things in the documentation or even the mailing list archives. Um, but uh, I I did um, I. I I did what I could to to help Anne come up to speed, and then I I tried to contribute back to the community in general. As I mentioned last week, I made a uh, an RPM package of Emacs Speak for Red Hat. Now I went I went back looking through the this period in the Emacs Speak uh, mailing list archives the other day, and one of the things that struck me was uh, fairly early in in her time coming up to speed with Emacs Speak, Anne posted a message about how she was using the W3 uh, web browser for Emacs, and now she was surfing the net more than she ever had before because, because it was such, a, uh, such a, a, a better experience to read the web page. Although W3 had its own problems, and in fact, one of the, one of the small Emacs Lisp hacks that I developed that I had forgotten about in the intervening years was an, a, an extension to W3 to convert the, uh, the, the tables of a, on, a, on a web page into something that you could move through you know, linearly with your up and down arrow keys as opposed to actually navigating it as a table. Because again, layout tables were so common in this time. So in a way, we had the same. We had one of the same problems as the Windows screen readers, but now we could hack around it. Right, and and also you don't have it's not five hundred bucks. You've got the kind of the liberation, and you you know it's not going right. to be end of life. I mean, you've got um, certain things that you get from open source. You're not going to get from a proprietary solution. Yeah, 
Yeah. Although things were getting better on the Windows side, it took a while for me to realize it because late in 1999, um, the so. And if, if anyone here has heard anything about Windows screen readers in the past couple of decades, you've probably heard of a screen reader called JAWS, which stands for Job Access with Speech. And JAWS came out, uh, I think it came out for Windows 3.1 in 1995 and for Windows 95, like a year or two later. But in 1999, uh, in the... The fall of that year, according to a friend of mine who was the engineering manager for JAWS at the time, um, they released an update which introduced what they called the virtual buffer. And it's it's not a very good name, but I'll explain what it did. Um, so when you were browsing a web page with Internet Explorer, they, they only ever did it for IE, not for Netscape. But when you were browsing a web page with Internet Explorer, JAWS would start intercepting your uh, keystrokes for the common cursor. Well, okay, let me back up. First, at least according to my friend Chris, the engineering manager at the time, JAWS would uh, grab the HTML uh, for the page from IE using the, uh, the the object model that IE was exposing through uh, something called COM or component object model. It was basically the technology that was used by things like Visual Basic for applications and VBScript. COM and OA, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So JAWS would grab the HTML out of IE using this COM object model. And according to Chris, it would parse the HTML and build up its own representation of the contents of the web page. Later, uh, when IE actually exposed the whole uh, DOM through COM, uh, JAWS could traverse that. And then um, it, would, uh, it, it would intercept uh, common cursor movement keys like up and down arrow, uh, home end, control home, control end, et cetera, and, and basically give you a linear uh, document type of structure that you could move through and then when it when it really started getting good was when they added what they called quick navigation keys. For instance, H to move to the next heading, uh, or or shift H to move to the previous heading. They all had this pattern. F to move to the next form field. B to move to the next button, and so on and so on. So you could more easily jump around the page uh, when you wanted to, or read it linearly if you wanted to do that. So I've met two questions. One, job access with speech. Where, I, so I've not heard of Jaws. What is the job in job? Is it like job, like a computing job? What's where's the name come from? Um, the, the 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 name is intended to signify that it's for access to employment. That's okay. So like job, like getting a job. Yeah. And so, was this was the genesis of this like a a program to help folks get work? I mean, I, I just I got more questions now. Well, I mean. It, it 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 was it was a commercial product developed by by a, a company called at the time called Hunter Joyce. Uh, the the head of the company was uh, a, a blind programmer named Ted Henter. and I, I I mean probably it was a it what you might call a a, a retronym or a backronym. Right. Yeah, but, I was wondering that too. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but and, and then the, my other question is: so, although you answered that, this was really designed with accessibility in mind because some absolutely. of the, the the keystrokes you're mentioning, I'd like that would be just kind of generally useful to be able to whip through a web page just using the keyboard um, and not have to go to a, to a mouse. Was 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 there any do folks use this? 
for reasons other than accessibility? Uh, not as far as I'm aware. Interesting. Although um, they might, I mean, it, it, it might be more attractive for, for people to do that uh, now that that functionality is built into the narrator screen reader, which is part of Windows. That was probably the, so, is that the next chapter here? Is that the way? The, and, and, um, and where do you come into the picture from a mic? Because you worked at Microsoft, so I worked at well, I did for three, years, but I didn't. So I didn't join Microsoft until 2017. Oh, that wow. was, okay, yeah, yeah. That was fairly late in the story. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. So I was I was doing my thing with with Emacs Speak and and Linux, and um, there was there was another uh, screen reader for Linux that came on the scene around 1999 called SpeakUp. And this, believe it or not, was implemented as a patch for the Linux kernel. Um, now it was, it was, it was at the time entirely dependent on these these hardware-based speech synthesizers, which were still pretty widely used in the late 90s. Although software-based solutions were beginning to take off on Windows, but even even then. There was a there was a problem, which was that unless you had a fairly high end sound card like the Sound Blaster Live that had its own built in mixing of multiple audio streams, you couldn't have speech synthesis and any other sound playing at the same time until, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Windows 2000 in the NT lineage or Windows Millennium in the 9x lineage when Microsoft added uh, software mixing. To the OS. So, can I ask a naive question? The, uh, uh, sure. the challenge of speech synthesis, how much of that is specialized hardware versus just having enough compute to actually work? It was really just having enough compute. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, well and, and I get, well, specialized hardware in that the very early computers uh, didn't have uh, their, yeah, their, their built in sound output wasn't up to the task. Um, like the Apple II. Um, you had basically one bit resolution in its built-in speaker. Um, the PC's built-in speaker, um, it, it could it could do its own tone generation or again, yeah, one bit resolution from you know, clicking the speaker on and off. Um, so lack of sound hardware built into the computer was a factor, but and and that and lack of lack of um, built-in support for mixing multiple sounds in the OS became the limiting factor for Windows in the late 90s. But meanwhile, over on the Linux side, um, it, I, I mentioned SpeakUp. And SpeakUp was written by a blind programmer and system administrator. He was, he was working at a, as a sysadmin at a university. And he wanted something that would speak as, as far as possible, everything that happened on a Linux box from boot up to shutdown. And so he wrote SpeakUp as a patch for the uh, the console driver in the kernel. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he even went so far as to do his own uh, serial port IO routines so that his uh, speech synthesis support could be up and running even before the normal serial driver was. And that is so, awesome. I mean, it's that's a great way to do it. Honestly, I mean, it's the it, it is the single single source of a certain kind of ground truth in the kernel, so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and as as one as one uh, person put it to me um, around that time, uh, try reading a kernel panic with Emacs speak. 
Right. Oh, in terms of like their motivation for this was, hey, we can't participate in kernel development because when this thing panics, we, we can't. Or, or independently get your box out of certain situations. That's interesting. Forget even the kernel development side of this. Just like the my box is in a reboot loop and I literally have got no way of figuring out why because I don't. I don't right. I, yeah. Wow. Interesting. Right. So I, I started uh, uh, and, and by this time in, in 1999, I had my double talk speech synthesizer. Um, it was it was a uh, a box that connected to the serial port of uh, of my machine, and so I started I started playing with SpeakUp, and uh, and I, I I realized that in in some ways yeah, you know, as I said in some ways it was it was a more complete solution than uh, than Emacs Speak, and my my first real contribution to well, trying to make it easier for people to get started with Linux and SpeakUp was, so I, I don't know if any of you guys remember, but Linux had a file system called UMS-DOS, which was basically a Unix, uh, a, a Unix uh, friendly, uh, <clears throat> yeah, a file system with all of the necessary features for Unix, like long file names and permissions and ownership, et cetera, implemented on top of the MS-DOS file system. So that meant that if you had a zip archive, of one of these UMS DOS file systems, you could unzip it onto your hard drive and then and then run it without having to mess with repartitioning and things like that. Because there was also a DOS utility called LoadLin that could boot into Linux. So, so, so it's like a DOS file system is like a store. I mean, is that am I understanding that? Yeah, yeah. Basically, a DOS file system is a backing store for a for for a Linux file system. So and so the Slackware Linux distribution had 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 a package called zip slack which was basically a slackware based system in a zip file that you could just unzip onto your dos formatted hard drive and run and so i took zip slack and uh, speak up and created zip speak uh, maybe not a, maybe not the best name but it did fit the eight character limitation <laughs> there you go right okay so so zip speak is i mean honestly like where is zip speak running is zip speak running is it is it are we in dos or in, in linux here i'm honestly confused well i mean the the idea was that you would boot your windows machine into dos mode run run this loadlin utility and then you'd be boot it would boot you up into linux from dos Loadlin was basically so, a DOS com file that acted as a MS DOS or sorry as a bootloader for Linux. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so and and speak up at the time, um, you had to compile um, you had to compile a kernel for the specific speech synthesizer that uh, that you were using. And uh, speak up at this time had five different uh, five speech synthesis drivers. So I, I remember writing this elaborate build script that well. Elaborate for for me at the time. Uh, it's hard to elaborate by any standards, honestly. Just, I mean, it seems like we got a lot of moving parts here. So, all right, so so ZipSpeak is then allowing for SpeakUp to be much more broadly used to be used by folks who are coming from the from the from the Windows and DOS side. Is that a fair statement? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so I put it out in I think March of two thousand. It got slash dotted. Um, <laughs> there we go. Uh, yep. Slash dot. Nice. Hopefully Slashdot had nice things to say. The hacker news of its day could say some very <laughs> not nice things. Um, uh, well, there was there was one guy, I, I think he might have been a troll, who uh, who was was commenting about uh, well why 
why why are you being so selective about which speech synthesizers you support? Um, oh, internet never change. Some things I just feel like truisms. It feels like you can yeah, an arbitrary um, good innovation. Interesting. Okay. So is my this, other yeah. my, go ahead. No, sir, go ahead. My other major contribution to speak up in early two thousand one was um, I, I refactored the synthesizer driver code so that you could compile all the synth drivers into one kernel and specify the one that you wanted on the command line. And then are you connected to folks? I mean, you, you, you've met fellow blind folks online. Um, it, it, are you connected to folks for whom this is opening up kind of new doors? Because, I mean, obviously you've got a very personal motivation for this stuff. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of my spare time around that time kind of yeah, doing one-on-one, you know, -on -one helping people get set up with with either Emacs Speak or SpeakUp. Um that must have been just. I, I've been. I, I, that's obviously got to be very personally rewarding because I mean, you're you're allowing someone to do something presumably they 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 couldn't previously do at some level. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, but by the time I was doing some of this, things had already gotten better on the Windows side, but only if you could afford JAWS. Got it. Right, right, right. So now you're actually allowing people to do this with open source. Yeah, neat. Yeah. So I'm, I'm also curious, just what using Linux looks like if you're visually impaired. Like I assume you're not trying to start X or, or do things like that. And things that like came later. Them, you know, things like them are probably a nightmare. You've got Emacs speak like does Ed become a reasonable choice of editor? Uh, there was one well-known uh, guy in the blind Linux community who seriously advocated that blind Linux users should use Ed. Um, because he he seriously felt that that a line oriented program like Ed, yeah, that that mastering a line-oriented program like Ed was the best option. Um, and in fact, he went on to write a program that he called EdBrowse, which was a re-implementation of Ed plus a browser using that same interface oh, style. Oh my wow. God, that's awesome. Um, and then like things like curses and tables and some of the more, you know, visually yeah, I, I, I think. Stuff. I think my my uh, wake up call that this was per, that that you know, using interfaces like that was perhaps not the you know, with a screen reader was perhaps not the best solution came when and 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 this leads into the next phase in my story, which is the beginning of two thousand one um, when I, I and I, I had been subscribed to the Speak Up mailing list for quite a while at this time, and a guy posted to the list asking for help getting a, a Red Hat Linux machine talking. And I was the one that, re that replied to him and offered to help. And just, and, and as, as I'm sure some of you recall, the, the text mode Red Hat installer used the whole you know, pseudo GUI style, uh, not technically using curses, but it amounted to the same thing with, you know, with, with dialogues and, and yeah, you know, a, yeah. You know, that the focused button would be highlighted and things like that. And I, I just remember trying to walk him through, you know, struggling to make sense of, of, of what was on, on the, you know, what was going on with that program. And I, I, I think that was when I began to reconsider whether accessing, yeah, you know, what using windows with a good screen reader might be better. So, yeah. yeah. So what what is it doing? It's just going dash 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 plus dash, um, dash, dash, dash Well, fortunately, the screen readers are a little bit smarter than that. 
but the problem is that you don't you're and and especially with the pseudo GUI toolkit that this Red Hat installer was using, the the cursor, um, the, the the blinking cursor, if it's which might not even which might not even be visible, but was really the only indication that a screen reader had of where you were on the screen. It might not always be in a useful place, and and when if if you were arrowing through a menu and and the highlight was moving uh, to, to indicate where you were. That honestly, I don't remember all all of the details at this point, but I I do remember that it was a that it was a challenge to work with. But I mean, in in, in a way, um, I, I mean, it was good that you at least had access to it in some form. There there are still plenty of GUIs, actual GUIs, even now that are completely inaccessible. Uh, this at least being text, you had something. But it wasn't, and and this this guy Mike, who uh, later became my boss, um, <laughs> yeah, he was uh, he was proficient with Windows, um, and he was, and, and and the other thing that kind of clued me into the fact that things had changed while I was off in Linux land, um, he was exclusively using a software speech synthesizer on his Windows PC, not not one of the hardware. Uh, Options, so, um, so things had things had shifted to the point where new things were going to be possible now without specialized hardware. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and um, and he had Jaws, which meant that he had the the best Windows screen reader that was available. And so so for him, um, trying to work with with Linux and speak up was was a downgrade. Interesting. So um, so did you go to Windows at that point, or what, what did you end up end up doing? So. Um, it, it, it was a, it was a while longer before I, uh, before I left Linux behind for a while. But, um, as I mentioned, uh, Mike became my boss and this, this kind of transitions into where I started working on, on accessibility for pay. Um, because Mike had, Mike was, uh, working at the time with an offshore programming company in Russia to try to develop a new product that he called Freedom Box, which was a, a talking, um, it was it was basically a well. So he described it at, at the time as attempting to be an AOL for the blind, uh, a very easy to use way of accessing the internet, uh, designed specifically for blind people. And what what he was trying to do at the time was using not only speech synthesis, but uh, speech recognition. So you could give the thing voice commands um, and, and it would talk back to you. And, and so he, I, I initially started working for him as his system administrator because the product had a, had an online service that went with it. And, um, the 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 first version of the product, which, like I said, was was a fully custom interface based on speech speech synthesis and recognition. Um, it I mean it, it it got some some it got some positive responses, but it was not taken seriously by the uh, by the basically the establishment the you know, the the people that were that were training blind people to use computers. Um, 
it particularly in it, and, and and this this was never intended for for access in a in an employment environment it was intended for for like elderly blind people trying to use the internet at home but still in order to to reach any of this market we've we needed something that would be taken seriously by you know, the existing uh well the the exit i mean by the people that were that 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 would make decisions on what to purchase yeah, or actually, whatever yeah, yeah right so so um what we ended up doing for version two in 2003 to 2004 was we did instead of a a fully custom very simplistic interface we did a talking browser based on mozilla that was it kind of more resembled jaws in the way that it worked and that is a pretty i'm, I'm trying to remember so because that is right when Firebird gets renamed, right? I mean, this is like... Yep, yep. Um, and, and in fact, one of the decisions that I had to make at that time was, was whether to use the existing SeaMonkey code base or the new Firebird fork. And I went with the old SeaMonkey code base, which was, in retrospect, a mistake. Um, but yeah, um, I did... Uh, so I, I basically did a something something akin to the JAWS virtual buffer but uh, implemented in JavaScript, um, and and it was this this talking browser uh, could run on both Windows and Linux. Um, but um, to make it run on Linux, I had to address the problem of mixing multiple sound streams, which at that point, oh. amazingly, had not yet been satisfactory. Had not really been addressed, to, at least not to my satisfaction. On the Linux side, it does feel like because, more of a collision course here with Pulse Audio. Yeah, well, Pulse Audio came out like a year or so after my implementation. Oh, I think. Um, uh, at the time, the 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 well, you had you you had two implementations. The the, the GNOME camp had eSound, and the KDE camp had something called Arts and uh, ARTS for. I think the RT was for real time, but. Um, what I recall about eSound in particular was that it used a very uh, naive uh, sample rate conversion algorithm, which meant that when you had a speech synthesizer that was uh, putting out audio at 11 kilohertz and you were trying to upsample it to 44 kilohertz, it sounded pretty nasty. And so I looked around all over the place for a sample rate converter that I could use um, and I ended up finding one that met my requirements in a mod player of all places. Um, and I, I pulled out that code and I used it. Um, and then how much of this is, I mean, the, the sound focus and, and the, I guess the, the KDE versus GNOME sound wars. I mean, I, I can't imagine that these two camps got along and had a consensus on a, I, I, um, I mean, I was not. Well, a, and, and I, I put my implementation out as open source that nobody else ever used it. <laughs> How much of their focus was on accessibility versus other aspects of sound? I mean, we're, it, it... Um, so GNOME, I mean, KDE to this day doesn't have a screen reader as far as I know. But on the GNOME yeah. side, yeah. But on the GNOME side, um, Sun Microsystems, um, uh, yeah, they, they put together a team to implement accessibility for GNOME. And, and as, as part of the, and, and uh, they, they actually so 
they actually ended up developing not one, but two screen readers. One of, <laughs> yeah, the first of which ended up getting killed off. That's um, for that sounds like something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. Well, out, so originally they had contracted with with another with 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 a a a company called uh, Baum B A U M, which was mainly known for manufacturing Braille devices. But Baum Baum had a team in Romania which was working on a screen reader which which sun contracted sun somehow engaged with with baum to develop a screen reader for for gnome called and this is a mouthful gnopernicus i kid you not it was called gnopernicus and and i i i'm i'm not well versed in the problems with that program but it was bad enough that my friend at the time uh mark mulcahy who was working for sun and his his official uh, and and he he worked on the GNOME accessibility team, but he wasn't tasked with working on the screen reader. He was tasked with working on basically their abstraction layer over the various speech synthesizers, a component called GNOME Speech, and it supported both both hardware and software uh, speech synthesizers. But Mark, who is blind himself, got so fed up with Gnopernicus that he took matters into his own hands and wrote a screen reader called Orca. Uh, and where that name came from is that, uh, so you, you already know that, uh, that the, the, the leading screen reader for Windows uh, was JAWS. Um, <laughs> before that, there, there had been a screen reader for DOS called Flipper. And of so, course, you've got you to go to a higher trophic level. That is, yeah. I would say, that is very on brand for Sun. Well, uh, apparently, Mark had, uh, some someone had suggested that that progression to Mark when he was previously an intern at Microsoft. Um, so, so Mark wrote Orca, and and uh, uh, retro, you know, after the fact, got permission from Sun to uh, to put it out. And and Orca <laughs> is to this day the GNOME screen reader, but Mark hasn't worked on it for a very long time now. And this works how by tapping into GTK or um, so uh, to explain this part, I need to I need to back up a bit and and explain another thing that was that was that started happening on Windows in the late '90s. So, uh, like I mentioned very early on, the GUI screen readers uh, intercepted calls to functions in QuickDraw or GDI or whatever to build an off-screen model, but it didn't take long. For, for people to realize that that wasn't going to be good enough. And in 1997, Microsoft put out something that they called Microsoft Active Accessibility, of course, because everything at that time was active this, active that from Microsoft. So Microsoft Active Accessibility, or MSAA, which I understand also stands for something else in some, some kind of anti-aliasing thing, but uh, MSAA was an API that uh, an application or GUI toolkit could implement to programmatically expose the content and, and semantics of the UI. And like the Internet Explorer object model, um, MSAA was based on COM. Um, so, but uh, one, of the, one of the first things that, uh, that the GNOME accessibility team at Sun did was to define an accessibility API for GNOME. And they 
my understanding is they did this in two layers at the GTK level, uh, GTK2 and GTK3 depended on, on something called ATK, which was basically the accessibility API for GTK. Uh, so, so that was, that was at the, you know, the in process, uh, you know, C library level. And then for the actual inter-process communication between the application and the access technology screen reader or whatever, um, they, they did, uh, an inner, what they called, uh, ATSPI, assistive technology service provider interface. Thank you, son, for that mouthful. Sorry. Uh, which was based on, uh, in, in the GNOME 2 era, it was based on Corba. And then for oh, GNOME boy. 3, they redid it based on DBus. Um, so. <sighs> Out of the frying pan into the fire. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, at spy, I will pronounce it. Um, my, 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 I, I, I'm not deeply familiar with it, but my understanding is that it exacerbates the, the problem of, of, uh, of being an inter-process communication protocol with the overhead that that entails by being fairly chatty, like, yeah, not being able to like bulk fetch information in one, in, in one IPC call, but having to do a lot of back and forth. And, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's basically, I mean, Orca would, uh, would, would connect to, so first of all, each of the, uh, each of the applications that supported this accessibility stack would register itself with, with a, with an at spy registry daemon, and then Orca would connect to that. And then from there would get object references to, to each of the, the windows, uh, on the on the desktop, um, and it would it would register. Oh, and and with all of these accessibility APIs, um, that the screen reader uh, registers event handlers, so it can find out about things like when the uh, when the currently focused uh, control has changed, and things like that. And this, so, how much kind of programmer awareness does this stuff require? I mean, are you, does this require that the programmer really program for accessibility and to what degree do programs kind of comply with that? Or, well, it depends. It depends on what level of the stack they're working with. Um, if they're writing their own GUI toolkit, then it it does require total cooperation from uh, from them. If they're writing an application based on an existing toolkit like GTK or Pick Your Windows toolkit or or a web application, then I I guess it depends on how custom. They decide to go like if they're just doing you know, straightforward buttons and check boxes and edits and list boxes, then in, in a lot of in, in a lot of cases with with simple UI patterns like that, we can get accessibility for free. If You're right. They, okay, so that answers the question. They, they're basically hooking into the Windows toolkits to to minimize that kind of that. That's of course like what you want to do. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, only now, um, one of if 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 any of you have ever. Uh, seen me on Hacker News. It might have been because I was posting a comment on an article about some random GUI toolkit, which had zero accessibility. <laughs> right. I, well, so like, another thing I was going to ask is that when when you have these kind of um, step forward in terms of technology, it, it must feel like, okay, boy, now there's another community that needs to go be educated about what's required for accessibility. Um, or, 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 or is that not the case? I mean, it, it, like I mean, in particular, I, I'm wondering about the, the the movement to the device 
and to the phone. I mean, has that been uh, hopefully net positive for accessibility or? Um, it has been, although at first when the iPhone came out, we didn't think it was going to be because the iPhone, of course, was and is an all touchscreen device with very few buttons. And when the first iPhone was released in 2007, it didn't have a screen reader built into the OS. And of course, iOS being as locked down as it is, there wasn't a chance in hell that there would be a third party screen reader for that platform. But then luckily in 2009, um, Apple uh, introduced the voiceover screen reader along with the iPhone 3GS and uh, Google was quick to follow with TalkBack, although it was a couple years before TalkBack on Android was at the same level of usability as, well, anywhere near, really, the same level of usability as VoiceOver on iOS. But the iPhone was, was really a game changer for us because it was the first mainstream mobile device that had a screen reader built into it. And, and with all with the explosion in apps for that platform, that just opened up a whole new world for us. And then, of course, it wasn't long before there were apps being developed specifically for blind people in some places, in, in some cases, replacing special purpose hardware devices because the iPhone had so many useful sensors and things built. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you now have got such power in your pocket. You've got, obviously, all of the hardware support you would need to do any of this stuff. And it's been able to ride the consumer economics, presumably. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, more recently, Apple is pioneering a new approach to, to screen reading, which is basically using machine learning, uh, optical character recognition, and other forms of machine learning to look at the pixels on the screen and try to figure out from there what's going on. Uh, in iOS 14, they introduced something called screen recognition, which does a pretty decent job, at least in some cases, of taking a completely inaccessible application and making it at least kind of accessible through machine learning. That's very impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, and, it, and, and sometimes when I see the, the what seems to be the constant uphill battle with the long tail of GUI toolkits... Um, uh, I wonder if if things like Apple's screen recognition are really going to be the future of the screen reader on all platforms. Yeah, I mean, you do. It, it does feel like I mean, machine learning opens up some possibilities that obviously we didn't have before, where we actually don't need necessarily programmer compliance or using a particular toolkit. We can just yeah. actually look at the the pixels that are rendered and actually then, um, yeah, that's 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 interesting. Well, and it, it's a relief to hear that it. I mean, is it, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but it does sound like things have, broadly speaking, improved with available computation and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the yeah, machine learning in particular is a really promising new, uh, new direction. I, I haven't yet seen anybody other than Apple doing that yet. Um, I'm not, I mean, at least the team that I was on at Microsoft wasn't working on that while I was there, but I, I, I'm sure they will at point. Uh, hope, well, so I hope I, they will at some point. Point that it's sort of crossover from the main limitation being just the capabilities of the hardware to being more of the social problem of how do you convince people to do this, right? Because like presumably in the 80s, it's, it's mostly a hardware limitation and in 
the early 2000s, it sounds like it's just Gnome and KDE not liking each other. Um, yeah, I think I think that uh, that the early 2000s was when well when the last well, like I said on 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 the Windows side, the last reason to use specialized hardwares for speech synthesis went in 2000 when Windows itself added uh, the ability to mix multiple audio streams. Um, Linux, of course, lagged behind, uh, but that wasn't a hardware problem. Or so, yeah. Uh, by by the mid 2000s, I would say just about everybody was using uh, uh, software software on a standard PC uh, with, without having to have a special uh, speech synthesizer card or device. But I guess it, it's been super educational. I mean, there's so many things I feel that I've learned about and not just EdBrowse, although I'm now, I, I, I like to, I, I, I'm, sweet. I'm definitely gonna go check out EdBrowse. Yeah. It is amazing. Um, so I guess a couple of things, just one, what are some of the, the, the um, open problems in accessibility? And maybe kind of in the same stroke, I mean, you, you were talking about kind of the hacker news comments that you have to kind of remind people about the need for accessibility. What, what is that kind of, if you could distill that reminder, I mean, what should software engineers know about accessibility? Well, um, <clears throat> first of all, if, if you have a choice, uh, use an existing UI, for, uh, mature UI framework, now, um, I, I know that there are reasons why people don't use the uh, why people don't use the, the 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 stock UI widgets that are provided by the OS. And kind of ironically, one one place where this happens a lot, where 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 custom GUI toolkits are are common, is in uh, digital audio workstations. Um, and I say I, I say I say that's ironic because blind musician is such a stereotype. Um, but, uh, um, I, I, I know, I mean, obviously I'm not going to convince the whole world of programmers to stop trying to develop lean and mean alternatives to Electron. Um, so I am actually, I have actually started a, an open source project that I call, um, Access Kit, which is an attempt to come up with a cross-platform, um, traction over the the accessibility APIs that I mentioned earlier. By the way, Microsoft Active Accessibility is dead. The uh, the current Windows Accessibility API is called UI Automation. Uh, I mentioned at Spy on the free Unix side, and of course Mac and iOS and Android also have their own accessibility APIs. And if if heaven help us, you are uh, targeting uh, uh, doing. Uh, you know, bringing your application to the web platform using something like WebGL or Canvas and you know, porting your code to, you know, to the web through WASM, then what you currently have to do over there is construct a parallel HTML DOM to expose information to the screen reader. But so I, I have started working on this access kit project to try to come up with an abstraction over all of these APIs that cross-platform uh, GUI toolkits can use, and I'm doing it in Rust. Um, nice, nice. <laughs> we, we need a crab emoji. You know, I, I want. What do I file a request for? Another emoji. Yeah. Um, so GitHub yeah, access kit slash access kit on GitHub. Um, it's still pretty early in development, um, but uh, I, um, 
I am uh, deeply indebted to Chromium for the design because uh, Chromium, of course, has to implement all of these, uh, all of the platform native accessibility APIs, except probably for the iOS one because you can't run act actual Chromium engine on iOS. And I, I really like the abstraction that they have come up with over over those APIs. But of course, that abstraction is deeply embedded in the massive Chromium C++ code base. So it's not particularly reusable. So, so you're taking that, that, kind of, that abstraction inspired by that abstraction. Yep. And uh -huh. yeah, that sounds great. Well, cool. We'll definitely, obviously, we'll, we'll link to that. Um, and Matt, this has been great. I, again, thank you so much for taking us down. I think I, I dare say certainly educational for me. I think it was educational for a lot of folks. Um, and I, I love the, uh, the samples were, were terrific. Um, and uh, really. Oh, since, since uh, deck talk came up last week, um, I should probably play a sample of deck talk for those who haven't heard it. Um, you see, this is where yeah. I, I feel that I feel that Twitter Spaces needs like a lighter emoji. Like, what is the lighter equivalent? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, lighter. You, you you should be. This is like what you do at a concert. You know, where you kind of like hold up your lighter when they're playing. You know, Freebird or whatever. Okay, okay. So here's Deck Talk again with an introduction from uh, Dennis Klatt, who, in this case, is introducing his own speech synthesizer. Thirty-five. Several of the Deck Talk voices. I am perfect, Paul, the standard male voice. I am beautiful, Eddie, the standard female voice. Some people think I sound a bit like a man. I am huge, Harry, a very large, perfectly voice. I can serve as an authority figure. My name is Kate Flip, <laughs> and I am about 10 years old. Do I sound like a boy or a girl? I am whispering, Lefty, and have a very blessed voice quality. All right, now, now it's three. So I am whispering. And Jesus. that came Whispering out in Wendy. that came out in in 1984. Holy wow. shit! That, that Which, last one is definitely super creepy, but but that's yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, he was showing off the range of vocal parameters that he could tweak. Yeah, I mean, he can dial up a three pack a day smoker. It's amazing. I mean, that is that is ridiculous for the time. Holy mackerel! Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I was astonished when I learned that Deck Talk was already at that point back then. And was Deck Talk aimed at accessibility? Or is that aimed at just the more broadly speech as this? Um, I think the original Deck Talk commercial product was primarily aimed at telephony applications. And then in the early 90s, you had uh, you had a couple of Deck Talk products that were aimed more at accessibility. You had the Deck Talk PC card, which was a an ISA card that you could put in a PC. And then you had the Deck Talk Express uh, box that you could hook up to your serial port. Now, um, the there there were applications of that in in sort of in the disability field, but beyond just blind people, because for people who couldn't speak for whatever reason. Uh, combine something like Deck Talk with the right software that would let them choose what they wanted to say using whatever whatever means they did have available to them. And and well, Stephen Hawking, of course. Um, of course, I was gonna say. I mean, of course, that yeah. Stephen Hawking did. Uh, he he didn't actually use Deck Talk, but it was a, from from the same era and very similar technology and had had a similar sound to it. That is like. Like how people like really like to customize 
um, a lot of the things about their desktop environments and window managers and color schemes, like, is there a similar thing for speech synthesis? Um, well, the choice of which speech synthesizer you use, especially now that it's all software, is is a very personal preference. Um, there are a lot of blind people. Who, so you you might be surprised to learn that the the newer generation, more natural sounding speech synthesizers are not uh, universally chosen by blind people. There are a lot of blind people who still use speech synthesizers from the the, the sort of deck talk generation of, of more robotic sounding synthesizers because they're they continue to be very intelligible when you crank up the speech rate. And and this this is another I mean probably the one of the most important settings for a blind person to be able to change about their speech synthesizer is how fast it talks because once you get at all proficient at listening to these things, you'll want to crank it up to at least something moderately faster than its uh, default rate, so you can be more efficient. Now, there is a uh, there's another audio clip that I would like to play if we have about a minute. Um, so, and and this is not so much a demonstration of technology as as kind of a glimpse of what you might call blind culture. Um, so in 2000, there was a patch that came out for JAWS that had the unfortunate side effect on some people's machines of blowing away all of their JAWS configuration files and custom scripts. Oh, by the way, JAWS had a scripting language. And so, you know, some you know, people these days, uh, well, sighted people these days make memes. Um, but there was this one blind teenager back then who, um, to vent about the effects of this JAWS patch, he loaded up his audio editor and did kind of a you know, making fun of the JAWS install, the talking JAWS installer at that time. Let me just uh, play this. Oh, and by the way, the, the, the other reason I'm going to play this is because it has a bit of singing deck talk at the end. Oh, man. So... Um, so is this, it whispering Wendy singing? I don't know. If I wish no, 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 no. Yeah, no, no. It's 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 the the default guy voice singing at the end. But <laughs> no, no. I, I'm not aware of anybody who used whispering Wendy as their default voice. I, I think that was just a show off voice for the the creator of the synthesizer. Mission but um, okay, so this starts out with the opening music and sound effects of the Jaws installer, and then and then the I'll I'll let you know when the uh, the satirical part of it begins. Oh my God. Sorry, this part's a little long. Welcome to the Jaws for Windows patch setup program. Please relax. Okay, this was an actual human voiceover from the original installer. This take a couple of minutes. Dr. Jaws, please wait. Now, Dr. Jaws, this synthesizer Dr. that you're hearing, a lot of us still use it. For JFW, which you have spent years and years customizing for each of your applications. Dr. Jaws had no respect for you. Yeah, this is this is deleting all of your JFW settings files. Please wait. Dr. Jaws found errors with JFW. Too bad. Dr. Jaws will not fix them. Dr. Jaws, this program has performed an illegal operation and will be shut down. If the problem persists, contact the program vendor. Close button. Thank you for installing the JFW update patch. Now you're screwed. 
You are a loser. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. That so. is that is hilarious and also like uh, I get a dissatisfied user. You got a dissatisfied user. Yeah. <laughs> that that's is a level seven dragging right there. I mean that that's that is, <laughs> that is an actually you know Matt, one thing I just, just because you uh you you called me out on this this week that I really appreciated that um one one thing that I definitely now appreciate is in terms of putting alt text on like on Twitter, Twitter's actually made it super easy to put all text on things. Mm-hmm. And the, and I actually like, you, you sent me down a whole path of like understanding the alt text on images and it doesn't, it only assists those who need it. It does not in other, in any way. I, so I've been, I, I actually want to find a way for Twitter to give me a reminder that I put alt text on images because I haven't done that before. And we'll, we'll start doing that from now on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I, I also noticed when you started live tweeting uh, from the uh, Almost Perfect book the other oh, day. Oh, shit. I didn't do it. You're right. Well, yeah. uh, fortunately, the um, so the NVDA screen reader has a built-in command for using the Windows 10 OCR module to, uh, to do OCR on a graphic. And it was able to do a pretty good job with most of those, uh, with most of those uh, images, although there was one... I think it was from the customer is always right versus customer always gripes package that uh, passage that uh, that that the the picture was not good enough for it to really be able to OCR it well. But um, yeah, were were you taking pictures of an actual book with that? Or? I was taking pictures of an actual book. You know, I came into this promising myself that I wouldn't talk about the word perfect book, but now that you brought it up, uh, yes, I was taking pictures of the book that I was fooling myself with. It's terrible. Ah, okay. <laughs> But no, but it's a good point. I, you know, it's funny because and I had just, it, it, I, I again, I almost want a way for Twitter to kind of stop me when tweeting an image because it's just, it's, I need the just a reminder that to, to enter. It's easy to enter the alt text and I need to go mm-hmm. do it. It's that yeah, it, although, the, the although, UI is not yeah, that easy. transcribing those whole passages from the book might it w- would would be more onerous, I guess. Uh, I mean, onerous only for the contents of the passages, not for the actual. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it would have been easy to go do. So yeah. I just, um, a reminder that, you know, I, and again, I really, really um, appreciate it and uh, appreciate, honestly, this has been so great. Thank you for the show and tell too. That has been absolutely awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had to, I had to email someone and ask if they could give me a copy of that Jaws patch audio clip. And and then when I got it, I was like, oh, this is too long. I, I won't be able to play it. But but then I, I decided I would at least ask. It, it's great. I'm, I'm glad you did. It was, as you say, it was a great... Uh, well, I think it's also insight into how the, how low-bearing the software is. Uh-huh. And, and, I mean, clearly you've got someone who's pretty upset because it's like, hey, by the way, I really depend on this thing for, like, my life. And, yeah. you know, it's like, I know it's just a bug to you, but it's like, it's a really big, and I, so I thought it's, it's a good, uh, a good window to the importance of how, uh, of the software. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Um, this has been a lot of fun, very educational. The show notes on this one are going to have a lot of interesting links. So looking forward to putting that one together. Yep. Um, I can also send you, if you like, um, the the audio files that I played, so you can have clean versions of them. Uh, th- uh, that would be great. I think we'll, we'll we'll link to them, right, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be perfect. Awesome. All, All right. right. Well, thanks. Thank you, Matt, especially, and thank you, everyone. This was uh, a lot of fun. Very educational. I'm again looking forward to getting the notes out there. Yeah, it was it was it was fun for me to go back down memory lane like that.
So awesome. All right. Take care, everybody. See you next week. All right. Thanks, Bye.
I played, so you, you can have clean versions of them. Uh, th- uh, that would be great. I think we'll, we'll, we'll link to them, right, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be perfect. Awesome. All, All right. right. Well, thanks. Thank you, Matt, especially, and thank you, everyone. Uh, this was uh, a lot of fun, very educational. I'm again looking forward to getting the notes out there. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun for me to go back down memory lane like that. So. Awesome. All right. Take care, everybody. See you next week. All right. So. Awesome. All right. Take care, everybody. See you next week. All right. Thanks, Bye. Bye.